the digital transition. Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 26. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm chatting with Tom Fussell about the history of BIM in Queensland in Australia. Now, this podcast is an important one to me, as I think there's lots that can be learned by the architectural profession uh, from my discussion with Tom. And it also highlights the work that needs to be done across industry here in Australia to focus on the reasons why digital processes should be embraced in the first place. But before I talk to Tom, I need to talk to you about our exclusive sponsor, NBS. The new Queensland Government BIM Data and Information Guidelines recommend the use of Uniclass 2015 classification system. In doing so, it provides consistency to the Australian design and construction industries. It now aligns with the Uniclass mandate by Transport for New South Wales and the Victorian Digital Asset Strategy Guidelines. Now, flying 3D specification, NBS Chorus's Australian Content Library allows you to specify your products, materials and systems in Uniclass 2015. Now, to learn more about NBS, head to their website, www.thenbs.com.au. Now, on to my interview with Tom. So thank you very much, Tom, for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, in all honesty, when I had the idea of putting this podcast series together back in December 2018, I remember being at a NatSpec Christmas lunch with you and I was there and I remember talking to Andrew Kerthois and, and the like and I, and I sat there and I've gone, you know what? There's a story here that needs to be told. There's a lot of people in industry that claim to be pioneers uh, in the BIM space. And, you know, my, my frustration a lot in life is centred in and around the lack of modest people. Oh, sorry, not the lack of modest people, but the fact that modest people don't get heard. And the story, I believe, in my mind, uh, that you have to tell is one that needs to be told and it needs to be shared with industry, mainly because I feel that there is a, a lot of expertise and processes that, that you were pioneering in project services at the time that unfortunately got cut short uh, by, uh, you know, a politician uh, without any reason or explanation for understanding essentially from a political standpoint the damage he was actually doing to industry. I think it will kind of clarify a lot more the expertise that was here in Queensland in Australia and how the work you were doing was world-leading at the time and, and no one really acknowledge that now no one really remembers that because people are new to the industry they don't actually understand or see what was done in the past because it's essentially evaporated from in space 
and the, the amazing team of people you had working with you at the time and now dispersed across industry. So therefore their expertise is not captured in, in, in whole in any, in any space. So therefore, and there's not clients that are driving as hard as you were driving um, to actually do it. So, you know, it's, it's great that I can finally sit down with you. We're sitting, the, for the listeners right now, I'm sitting out here in a beautiful rural setting with Tom on his, on his uh, veranda. It's kind of very much kind of a Queensland kind of uh, feel to it, which is, is really nice. But, you know, BIM is an output or BIM was a result of your overall goal. And, you know, one of the things that I am very passionate about is capturing history. And, you know, I was, I was part of a practice at Fulton Trotter uh, that had a history of nearing, nearing 80 probably years. And one of the people that I found of substantial value uh, within that practice was uh, Frank Moss in terms of one of the most modest architects that you'll ever meet. And, but the knowledge and, and experience that he brought to the table could never be matched by anyone I ever knew. And the experience he brought to the table, you know, just could never be, could never be meet, met, you know. And I see a similar uh, thing in yourself in the sense that the work that you've done and the things that you have achieved in industry haven't been celebrated. At the time they were uh, because what it was was amazing stuff. But what people know now is only today. They don't see the past in what they're doing. And I think that sitting down and having a chat today with you about the history in the past is really, really important to provide context to people probably as to why BIM is what it is today. You know, people probably are just doing it now because they think it's in what, what they need to do um, rather than actually understanding why you were doing it, when you were doing it. And I think that's a really important story. Now, I'd really love for you to kind of share with the listeners your history and your story, Tom, because I think that, you know, hearing about your journey, I think, is is really important. And then we can probably delve into some of the details in and around some of the, the projects and the actual things that you were doing. So first of all, Tom, I guess I'd love to hear, you know, where you started. Mm. When, how, what, how did you start in architecture? I started in the 1960s, uh, Nathan, in, uh, in Sydney, working uh, with a government agency there, the Bank and Special Projects Section, um, that were focused on building the Reserve Bank in Martin Place at the time, and I spent uh, time there. Um, and that committed me to want to become an architect, and that meant I had to go and do some study, which uh, I would probably have done uh, uh, at the University of New South Wales, except they had changed the rules, which turned a part-time course into eight years, which for a 20-year-old seemed a very long time. And I looked around and I could have gone to Melbourne, I could have come to Brisbane. And uh, and the climate, as much as anything, drew me to Brisbane and I've <laughs> made a move that I have to say I have never for a moment ever regretted. But as one became more engaged and involved in, in architectural practice, there were, there were things that, that concerned me. Um, 
One was the absolute focus on design in capital letters, almost to the exclusion of other things that were equally important in the in the construction process, the building process, um, to the point where clients who were looking for a return on investment were, were getting um, what the architect would see as a lovely building, but it didn't ever meet their expectations about having a building that made a profit. And as a profession, we seem disinterested in that and just continued to focus on design. Equally, though, the construction process, the process um, is much diminished if it doesn't have the, the opportunity for, for good design. And the outcome that I envisioned was a world in which uh, the contribution of architects was valued, respected, and that they remained a significant leader in the industry. Um, but that's not quite how it had happened. Um, project management became the thing to to focus on, to get money uh, and profit and uh, um, productivity at, at the centre and that led in large part to the design and construction industry, which con continues today and which, which certainly has a role. Um, but the role of the architect is over the, that time much diminished. So... I was very focused on what needed to be done and, and I looked to management and did a um, postgraduate degree in management to, to build some skills there and, and, and then looked at how that might be combined within, within the architectural profession. The other concern that I had was the, the complementary nature of architecture with the engineering disciplines who were, had an increasingly important role in the in the output. So again, I always look for a time when we might be able to run multidisciplinary practices rather than just architects and, and engineers in their own boxes and contributing their own their own little bit. Anyway, I uh, I had a number of roles within within public works um, during that time. Part of some of which were related to the, my management training, some to do with the technical training. Until the point in, uh, in uh, 1989 I was appointed Chief Architect, which I have to say was the role that I had aspired to from the time I began uh, and, and it was the role that I was perfectly happy to end my career on because I felt it was an opportunity to do some positive things for architecture within, within government, within that broader context that I've just described, uh, it being a, an important part of... Um, of the whole building process. With, with some changes that we made to the ways in which consultants were engaged and overviewed, um, we managed to, to change the mix of work that was commissioned to the private sector and the work that was undertaken internally to the point where more of the work was being done internally than it had been done before and it was being done extremely well by some very good designers that we, we had in, in the office. Um, the other concern that I had as Chief Architect is that I had a responsibility for the approximately 250 people in that, in that discipline for their professional development and opportunities for experience to make them the best practitioners that they could be 
and accordingly we we did retain quite a proportion of the work and set high standards for ourselves about what the outcome was going to be. I could name some of the designers but I won't because there were a large pool of, of able people. But I sought to give them experience. I sought to give them challenges to make them reach out and make them better architects with the, with the expectation that the, the possibility was there at some stage in the future, government may, may make a decision to no longer provide that service to the community and want to commission it and that they would disband it. The, the architectural and engineering probably disciplines and, and I wanted our people to be able, uh, if, that, if and when that happened, to be able to go into the private sector or go and set up their own, own offices with the necessary skills, experience and capabilities that were necessary. Fortunately, that didn't happen until 2013 and there was much to be done before that. Um, and we, look, we looked around at, at the sorts of things that we needed to be doing. We had um, a number of regional offices and they were a very important part of it and, and they had to be incorporated into that design process. We also had um, some very good engineering practitioners across all of the disciplines and they had a, an important contribution to make. But my earlier experience was that it wasn't a united uh, and complementary arrangement, that they were, they were separate and they each had their own fiefdom and they each kept to their own turf and they didn't want anybody overlapping. Well, my view was totally the opposite, that we were about collectively producing a building and the things that the services engineer needed to do complemented and, and changed a little the things that the architect or the structural engineer or somebody else was doing. The contribution of the quantity survivors in, in keeping a control over the, the cost of what we were producing was equally important because one of the disappointments in the earlier times was that buildings were not always delivered on the budgets that they were given to do with, with great disappointment and, and resentment at even. So how did we make it um, more efficient? How, how did we get to this point? Because one of the disadvantages we had, the, the public sector architects were probably on average paid a little more than those in the private sector. So we had to become more productive and more efficient. The first lot we, uh, we tried, we... we um, started out using AutoCAD and that was um, an initiative of the... Oh, I don't know, um, mid-80s, I suppose, early 80s. Um, and it was initiated, in fact, it was sponsored and promoted by the Director General of the Department as much as it was by the, the technical people. And we set up two groups, one under a guy called Mike John, who himself was an outstanding designer, who was looking at developing some standards for, for schools, a new school standard. And a group that I had responsibility for that was more to do with uh, with the whole... Um, office uh, set up for Queensland government um, office, uh, agencies. Anyway, we had some very expensive, I think they each cost $30,000 each of the machines that we bought from memory. Um, and uh, they, they were um, quite antiques compared to anything that might be around today. 
But but we worked away and we trained a lot of people up in using AutoCAD and, and that was the foundation of things that happened a little later on. There was one other thing that was going on at that stage, though, that was outside that in, encouraged and inspired me, a guy called Vic Selig, who was the a deputy um, government architect in New South Wales in that time. He invested $500,000 in buying a machine and he was his ambition was to do the things that we are doing now. He wanted to design and document the whole of the building process on his $500,000 machine. Well, his ambition may have been a little unrealistic, <laughs> uh, but the ambition was was inspiring. It it was it set a goal, I suppose, for the whole industry back in the mid 1970s to say this is what the world should look like um, in the future. Um, I was in his office talking about it one day, and he said, "Look, why don't you have a game of chess with my machine?" And I did. I did play cash from time to time, and I and I wasn't a great player. But uh, but anyway, the first concern I had in the likely success of his outcome was when I had that game of chess. I didn't win, but I didn't lose. We played a stalemate with his his computer, <laughs> um, and and that eventually fell by the way. But it was a it was a beginning, an inspired beginning by Vic to say. This is what is, is possible. And, and that, that stayed with me for a long time. Um, I had a break. I went off in England for a while after, after all of that and came back um, before I became chief architect. But, but it was really about what we wanted to do with the people. So um, the, the 2D documentation was, was a start and it had its wrinkles and it had its, had its benefits. There were some people that were playing around with 3D stuff and I was approached by a, a salesman, a guy, um, who came to me and said, we've got this new package called Revit. Would you have a look at it? And we already had, by the way, some, some Archicad. We had two Archicad licenses in the office that we had bought to give some of the staff an opportunity to try it out as a, a not so much a plaything, but a, an experiment. Anyway, I had a look at Revit and, and it looked pretty good and, and I was equivocating about it but um, he said, look, I'll sell you 20 licences for the price of five and that the price of five wasn't all that great. So I thought, okay, we'll, we'll give it a go. And the way in which people got trained on Revit in those days is you got up at 1.30 in the morning and logged on to a site in America and you did your training there because Revit wasn't owned by AutoCAD, Autodesk. Yeah, it was before they were it was out. It was an earlier version and that's where we started and uh, it mainly started with architecture but we were looking to expand it. So that was, that was probably um, the key decision was to make that move towards um, a a digital environment where design could be manipulated within a computer environment. It didn't need paper. It didn't need a huge amount of redrawing. If you changed your mind, you could make those changes successfully. And, and that's one of its benefits even to this day. Um, so, so we did that and um, um, it was just uniquely in the architectural area at the time and ultimately... Autodesk took it over or bought it out and, uh, and they, they did some very good things, I must say, that uh, they made a commitment to it. Um, 
I'm, I'm a little concerned about the state of, uh, of Revit at the moment. The, the costs of it for practitioners is, is a challenge, but, but the technology of it still is, is quite good. So that, that was for the architectural thing. And, um, but, but the other thing that seemed to me to be important was we had, as I said a moment ago, the, the integration of, of um, the engineering disciplines within to a common group instead of them being separate separate houses in the street. And it took many years for it to happen, but um, from when I became chief architect just before 1990 until we achieved it, it was, I don't know, it was progressive anyway. It didn't all happen at once. We got bits and pieces of it. But eventually we, we did, after about 15 years, we had a combined organisation under my responsibility that was related to the design team. Um, we had other other groups that were responsible for project management and, again, the two between design and project management was very complementary and uh, people worked as a team. And we were blessed, I suppose, in another respect that we were in a building that had a floor plate of 4,000 square metres and we were able on that single floor to put all of the disciplines that were together so that instead of making a phone call or walking down the street, you just walked along the corridor and you could speak to anybody you wanted to. And and the trust, in my view, between the disciplines and the mutual support was such that they worked together very well. And we then then all right, well, what can we do with, uh, with, with these tools that we're getting and they're getting better because they weren't just about about design and documentation in a narrow sense. Some of the engineering softwares that we were buying into were doing the analysis for for, for sustainable designs and energy use and, and a, a whole range of things that hadn't been available. And our, our philosophy probably was if it looks as if it might be some value, we'll buy it and we'll try it and if it doesn't work, we'll dump it. Well, we did that but we didn't have to dump too much because most of the stuff did work and yep. it did work complementary and and the engineers could see some benefit of, of what they were getting out of the architects and equally the architects could see the benefits that they were getting out of, um, out of engineering. So it was a, a very cohesive team in my view in that, that whole time until the, uh, the end came. But we just kept pressing envelopes. It was certainly about design to start with then we started looking at uh, at how we might marry this into into construction the long-term ambition i must say the one thing that that drove me was that the ultimate beneficiary of this has got to be the owner the end user the asset management because the architectural team might have and the engineering team might have, let's say, a year in putting this thing together and designing it. The builder might have 18 months to two years in building it. And then we all walk away and the owner's now got it and he's got to live with this for the next 40 years. So we need to be able and focusing on building the, team, the, building the tools that would enable us to pass that information on to, to the owner that he could use it. We never quite got that before seeing time ran out. It was it was one of the things that we were looking to do, but it was while it was perhaps the most valuable, it was also the most challenging. And uh, we had done work with. Um, I was involved in CRCs at, at in that time. Uh, 
on construction innovation and uh, and others that followed on from it where we were looking at modular design, uh, off form, uh, off-site construction. They were the things that interested you very much and, again, we only were ever able to play at the edges with that because the opportunity didn't realise for us to do the whole thing. But that's that's in my vision. A lot of off-site construction is going to have to be a part of the, the process. We we did get to it with the mechanical engineering side of things was one of the, the big improvers because we all know how frequently uh, they would make up ductwork, bring it on site and find that it was intended to run through a beam, (laughs) take it away and rebuild it. Well, building modelling helped them to to do that clash detection, to do the envisioning so that it didn't happen. And the productivity of of the whole mechanical services thing was, was wonderful to see. But... It, it ranged across a whole dis, a bunch of disciplines. Sustainable design was a big important part of it. The integration of the disciplines was a critical part of it. And and some of the best satisfactions I ever had in that period when we could we could go along as a team on a thing and we won major engineering awards, not just architectural awards. We won a lot of architectural awards, um, but but it was you know good to see how the cohesiveness was going forward and we really had built something um, that was valuable. In hindsight, I, I do take the satisfaction that when the the business was disbanded in 2013, the one overwhelming thing for me was that our people had to be able to be employable and that's how it turned out. And a lot of them were very much in demand and pretty much everybody that wanted a job in the outside world Good get one. Yeah, well, one of the things that can be said today is the number of people that I actually, you know, interact with at industry events right now all originated from project services. And I think the challenge that I see from all of that is the, the, the problem is, is that when they were together, there was a powerful force and, and it was a powerful unit. And it's kind of similar to the analogy you talked about where, you know, if you're on that same floor, the power of what you can do as a team is incredible. But now the team is disbanded across industry and the power has been diluted so much. Mm. And industry has gone substantially backwards since then. Now, I think the, the key takeaway or a summation behind everything that you've done comes back to the whole concept of architects delivering greater value for their, for their customers. Architects' failures were because is where is why project management became a thing mm. because they couldn't manage projects on time or on budget mm. because they were off once again in design land and you know the irony is is that design's only worth fifteen percent of your fee mm. I think isn't it mm. <laughs> and and the rest of it's actually about delivering your project mm. so that you're delivering information for the consultant team to work with and and collaboratively deliver a, a, a coordinated design and then producing information for a builder to build from. Mm. And mm. So there's a lot of things I think in architecture school that they forget to kind of teach people about that in mm. terms of making them aware of what's going on. But from, from my mind, I think that's the kind of fundamental thing behind this whole, the whole thing is that you didn't do it because you could, you didn't do it because you wanted to do it for fun and games. It was actually about trying to achieve better outcomes. And I think that's, from my mind, uh, really, really important. 
Now, I remember a time, I believe it would have been when I actually first got to meet you, would have been back in probably 2010. It might have been 2009, 2010. And at the time, Fulton Trotter had just been engaged to do some regional health work for project services. So Paul Trotter and I toddled down from Spring Hill down to your offices and I remember sitting in a room with you and John Coglin, and we were talking about trying to understand, I guess, because at the time we were using Archicad and trying to make sure that we could deliver, you know, outcomes that align with the, your plan room requirements for DWG outputs. And the one thing that I remember about that meeting, apart from who was actually sitting at the table, which is, you know, over a decade ago now, was two documents that you handed me when we sat down. And those books, you know, as I said to you earlier when we were sitting down before we hit the record button, I used to have in hard form and now I only have them digitally. And, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of people in the industry that, that wouldn't be aware that these documents exist and they are available, I think. I don't know if they're on the CRC website anymore, but if I can find the, the links, I will have them in the, um, in the show notes for you so you can actually get access to them to understand what they're about, but there's two documents. One of them um, specifically is a national guidelines for digital modeling, which was produced um, as part of that research. And there are numerous case studies from industry in there. And there's a lot of documents or a lot of case studies specifically in and around the work that was done by project services. And there's a second volume to that as well, which is actually the case studies um, component of that. And when you start flipping through the pages of these two documents, you could be shocked to know that these were produced in 2009, you know, because in my opinion, the work that's being currently, you know, thankfully Queensland government's moving forward again. We've had a hiatus. You know, 2018 we saw the new policy coming out about digital enablement, which is kind of ironic when there was a digital enablement in the past. But I fear that even with the new policy in place and agencies progressively moving forward, that we won't see the level of output produced by industry for government agencies to the same level probably for another five years. That's mm. my gut instinct. Mm. So the sad thing is is we've probably lost, you know, 10, 12, 15 years of progress and, and, I'd, and I would be scared to see where you could have driven it, Tom, mm. had you had another, you know, mm. had you had another seven years in this realm, what you could have done. The case studies, I guess, specifically, I think, are, you know, are really interesting in here. And one of the first ones I guess I wanted to have a chat to you about was in and around, you know, the North Lakes Police Station project, which is one of the case studies in this book. Mm. It's a long time ago. It is. That's one of the early ones, yeah. yeah. It's a very, very long time ago. But from the reading, you were talking, you know, the, the, the article talks substantially in and around trying to get this collaboration to work. You know, are there any, any kind of things I guess you could kind of touch on? It might be the fact that, you, you know, you talked about the mechanical design, but are there kind of lessons that you learnt from that or are there any specific kind of points I guess you'd like to make in and around that North Lakes project? Uh, probably not. I mean, it's a bit, a bit dim in my my memory <laughs> these days. But uh, 
But look, you you um, you mentioned John Coghlan, and I'll just use him as an illustration because uh, John I provided a fair bit of support for um, Yaki Cat, and um, he's now from something I saw recently, the digital design manager for Langarook. Langarook was the company that built the first building that we did with models for construction um, with, with um, the archives. We did another one that was, well, we were starting to do them more regularly, but that was the one we, we took a big leap on. And I have to make Max Smith, who was the general manager of project services at the time, was a great support and instigator of that as well because I had a guy, again, it was about picking up opportunities. I had a guy whose name escaped me for the moment that was from New Zealand that came to me and said, I can help you with, um, with modelling for construction. <laughs> and we played around with it and then it was persuasive and we, we built a model for that, that building and... Um, and we we pushed it through, yeah. And and at the time that it was being a little bit equivocal whether it was going to happen or not, I have to say, Max Smith was the one that said yes, get to, just just go and do it, and we did. <laughs> um, but 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 John actually, I saw him in um, in um, Brisbane Airport. He was doing their digital stuff for a while, and then I saw he's with Langer Rock now. So. Yeah, so I think he. We did a presentation for us at Brisbane uh, last Christmas. I think it was at our Brisbane X event. And, yeah, I saw just recently he's just released a final document for uh, Brisbane Airport Corporation's obviously taken up a new role. Mm. But obviously some of these case studies are probably well and truly uh, past memory. Mm. <laughs> the Queensland State Archives Extension Project. Yeah. And in that project the case study talks a lot about trying to help out in regards to 4D on site. Yeah. Again, it was fortuitous because Langer Rook were a, a British company that were a bit interested in doing that anyway. So, uh, uh, but that, I think it was the first one that was done, done here anyway. But, uh, but it, was, it was really just saying we want to do it and not run a whole lot of feasibility studies about how it will go. It was just let's do it, now get on and do it and make it work. And I, and I can't think of any... Any initiatives that we took that that actually fell over flat, um, they they all seemed to to go. But and it, and, it, and it wasn't just me. I mean that that, that certainly is uh, and something that I would emphasise that I was perhaps more focused on strategy and vision and direction. And we would talk about things that we might do, and generally the, the team would of senior people in the place would sometimes reluctantly agree to it, <laughs> but they would agree to it and then they would all get on and do it. But the, the really hard stuff, the, the innovative stuff was done by a lot of practitioners in the place. We'd give yeah. them a challenge and say, this is what we want to do and they would go and use the, the technology that was available to them to deliver it. Um, occasionally it would be a little reserve. One of the things that we do, or two of the things that we did towards the end were uh, I could see no value in, and never could, in um, an engineer sitting down and doing a detailed design, structural engineering I'm talking about now, and documenting and putting it out to tender. Builder wins it and he goes to a steel detailer to go and redo it. Uh, 
we said, we're going to do that. We're going to cut this out. We'll do less design to start time and we'll turn it into shop drawings and we will give the builder the shop drawings. And we managed to do that on a North Lakes project, but it was, it was a relatively modest project. But, but we had actually, and again, um, I was often cautioned that what we were doing was too risky. And, and certainly that, that, if you take that on, you take on the responsibility for the, the whole detailing. But our people were able to do it. And, and I have to say that when we challenged them and they did it, they felt good about themselves. They felt that they had a, an additional contribution. They're making that. a difference. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that we were just trying early on, we were giving, the, working the quantity surveyor, we had a very good quantity surveyor in, team in, in this that were really enthusiastic about, about it and we were looking at how we could give them the, give the contractors the price. And we basically did that on two housing projects, not big projects, a couple of housing projects, not houses, but uh, yeah, public multi, housing, yeah. multi residential stuff, where we were able to give to the builder the price. Um, but that was that was very near the end, and that was the next step that we were going to do was not not just give builders prices, but to work in a way that by measuring it off the model. You know, you could come up with all of it and we would be able to give the builder all of that. We'd be able to give them all the the quantities and all of the stuff that they would need to put their version of the numbers into to say this is what the price is going to be. And it goes back to the the past where clients would be willing to invest in a guaranteed bill of quantities. Mm. But now the communication of information is clearer because not only are you able to provide quantities but you're able to demonstrate and show what the final product's supposed to look like. So therefore, you know, uh, each individual trade can see, well, you know, I need 10 of these light fixtures but these light fixtures are installed at 20 feet up in the air or, Mm. you know, six metres up so I'm going to need to price the certain scaffold or... You know, there's a complex corner here, or because the the drawings made a project look more complex, the pricing, the risk mm. got increased in the you know the subcontractors that apply a risk price to it. Mm. Whereas if it's a clearer set of information that's produced and provided, it'd make it a lot easier for them. Mm. So I can see the benefits of that. But you know, the scary thing is, is that you know that work you did with Lango Raw was project was actually completed in 2008. Mm. <laughs> It's a it's a long long time ago. It it's scary to think that that's the case. But it that, that I think from memory, I think I do remember talking. I think you did share the story about the shop detailing thing, and the same thing can be said for mechanical as well. Because unfortunately, we sit there in the design stage of a project, and we're trying to work well in collaboration with our services engineers, mechanical engineers, they'll design. A hundred percent resolved mechanical system based on a certain plant size and ducts that are you know resemble because of that or an output because of that, and then you go to tender, and because of the relationship that that specific builder has with certain mechanical subcontractors, they have certain relationships with certain you know mm. uh, manufacturers, mm. and they go, well, we can deliver the same outcome but cheaper using you know, this system and they have mm. to redesign the whole system mm. Mm. and it all falls over. Mm. 
So it brings to light some of that that work you were doing back then, the need to change the way in which contracts are drawn. And, you know, late, you know, I think probably would have been around. Bob Baird from Australian Defence Force would have been probably around trying to talk about collaborative contracting mm. when, when project services were still around. Mm. Yeah, yeah, probably towards the end of it, yeah. yeah. yeah and it still isn't happening here in mm. Australia. It's, mm. it's interesting to see why, you know, I, I think design and construct as a, as a process doesn't drive the greatest value for clients. Mm. I think that traditional procurement has its place at this point in time, but to try and see whether or not a team can, you know, on, on slightly larger projects, it'd be interesting to see how implementing some of these concepts that you were using over a decade ago mm. into projects and how that could make a huge difference. You found your team members or the team that you had working with you uh, found, found, you know, felt empowered by being able to embrace these new processes and new technologies. What was the response from the market when you, you go there and say, you know what, we're not tendering on this project using drawings. You're going to be tendering, here's a model. Was the response from the market a positive one or was it one of shock? Uh, it, it, it's mixed, I yep. suppose. I mean, those that could see beyond what they've done for the last 15 years would say, yes, let's, let's give it a go. Uh, they'd be looking for something. What, what's in it for me? That's inevitable. And, and you could explain what that might be. But it, it's it's really a bit about persuading people, isn't it, or sharing with them, or showing them what you what you're trying to do, and that you're not trying to take them down or take advantage of them. It's it's in our common interest. That's what it's all going to be about. Ultimately, ultimately, it's about common interest that we all benefit out of it if we if we go down the right paths as a team, delivering mm. better outcomes for asset owners, and and that's kind of I guess the fundamental as to you know why we all have done what we're doing. It's why you did what you did throughout mm. your career and it's why I am still on that journey in my career today. Now, based on that sort of stuff that you were doing, because of the, your role in government, you would have had opportunities to talk to other, you know, other government organisations, other people from around the world. Do you feel that at the time the work that you were doing here in Queensland was world-leading? I, I, I personally feel it was. Yeah. Maybe I'm biased. I don't know. Maybe it's yeah, just the Queenslander nature of me. Certain, certainly nationally it was. we were well ahead of the game and in, in particular areas I think, yes, we were, were you know, ahead of the other people in other parts of the world. And if we'd had another five years, which is what I would have hoped to have had, um, we all do. We'd have we'd have pushed it a lot further. Um, we're, we're we're prepared to have a go. That's it's really, and I suppose that's an an Australian characteristic, isn't it? To, to give it a go, and um, and pretty much everything we tried somehow or other worked. I don't think that. Would and we shared it to the private sector as well. I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to encourage the private practitioners to. To get on board with this well as well, and and we had a reasonable success in in Queensland with that. I don't know what it's like now because I'm not, <laughs> not out there. But um. oh, it, through the survey work that I've done with my role with the AIA ACA, the challenge is is that I still believe personally that the industry in Queensland and across Australia is still fixated on design. They don't recognise or they think that just by purchasing a software they're doing they're doing BIM. Yeah. But 
they're not actually, you know, I, the the funny thing that you said about capital letters, um, you know, just it, it, the the fixation of the profession on the look of a drawing, you know, it has to be all in capital letters rather mm. than actually thinking about, well, you know, is that the clearest communication to a, you know, the person receiving that information? Mm. Other drawings that we're producing actually the right drawings you know the, the the challenges i always face in any conversation is every architect has a different way of producing drawings because that's what they think see is their art form and the mm. problem is is that as an architect we struggle to generate value or demonstrate value to a client because unlike a you know an architect all we're producing is information and a set of drawings and a, you know a pile of paper for a specification mm. whereas a builder produces a built outcome mm. so when a client hands over money to a builder, they're getting a built outcome. When they're handing over money to an architect, all they're getting is a set of drawings, essentially, and, and, a, and a specification. So architects have that challenge, I think, where they kind of think, well, we as an industry need to demonstrate to people, well, it's actually mm. the intellectual knowledge that goes into creating that design mm. that makes that, that actually informs the builder. The builder isn't the one that actually has the knowledge of what that building should be to be safe, to be comfortable to be more sustainable. The builder knows how to put the bits and pieces together. But it's that the team of consultants that actually bring the, the years and decades of knowledge together to actually mm. do that work. So mm. I think that the second that architects actually recognise and are more interested in sitting down with people that they have to provide the information for, and I could take a really simple example of window and door schedules. Every architect does their window and door schedules differently, but... Has any of those architects actually sat down with G. James mm. or uh, Bradnams or one of the other door and window manufacturers and said to them, how would you like this schedule produced? What information do you need to enable you to, first of all, tender and price and quote a uh, project and secondly, to build from? Now imagine if that they came back to us and said, well, do you know what? What you're producing right now isn't actually what we need. Mm. but we use it because that's what we're just getting. We're just, we're, then there's no communication in industry around the true needs of what information is required. And that I think is the first step to making the profession even more valuable because yes, we all study architecture because we want to spend time designing. Mm. If we find ways of producing information more efficiently, then we can invest more time in design and driving greater value for our clients that way. I think not enough focus, I guess, from the profession on how they can actually help, you know, make clients' lives easier. Yes, good design is a part of it, but also the way in which the team from a design and construction side work together to actually get a better outcome. And that can then impact positively on uh, construction programs it impacts positively on potential project budgets because you talk, you know, some of the big biggest things that I remember hearing, you know, throughout my whole, throughout my career, it's only been 18 years now, is about uh, project cost overruns, you know, and it was synonymous in government work. And now the question is, is whether or not the budget that was set in the first place was actually wrong or whether or not the brief changed. Mm. So then actually increase the value of the project because the scope was never the same or whether or not 
there was a huge miscalculation in the project in the in the first place. You know, I've been very fortunate throughout my career. Most of the, the it started off at Fulton Trotter. We had Archie AutoCAD for a couple of years and and some hand drawing background work that we do. But then most of it's been using using a BIM authoring platform. So the focus has been on you know monitoring RFI rates, monitoring variation rates. So therefore we can then improve our services to our customers and our clients. So therefore, when they sign up on a project with a builder, that there's less unknowns and you're trying to cover the basis of where you may have made mistakes in the past or, you know, variations from projects in the past. I don't want to stop on the innovation because we haven't finished. You know, we haven't even covered off on a, you know, another exciting project, I think, that, that, has essentially been parked. And I know that in the couple of years leading up to project services demise, you know, there was a, an exciting project that you're undertaking with QUT, between project services and QUT. And do you want to just share with the listeners a little bit about this library object project? Well, it, it never really got, got off the ground really to the point that it was a usable tool. Yeah. Uh, it was certainly stuff we were, were working towards and it's one of the biggest challenges now. I'm, I'm involved with, um, or I have been until very recently, with NASPEC um, yep. and I've just retired my chairmanship of the board there. But, um, but, uh, but even there there's, there's concerns about how that global multipurpose um, library of objects and things will actually work. It's finding lots of issues that are emerging out of it and I'm candidly no longer close enough to it yeah. to have a, an informed opinion on just where the next steps might be with that. But but it's it's got to be the answer. I mean, ultimately it's got to be the answer, but how far away it is is a whole other story. It's one of those things that I haven't heard Robin talk about it in the in the last few years. So from my mind... It's kind of just lost research, yeah. you know, from where it was where it was going. Yeah, well, that's, the funding dries up on a lot of it. I mean, I was going to mention Robin uh, before when we were talking about um, the universities and their approach to to this. Um, they've had Robin there for for some years, and Scott was there for quite a long while, um, doing some training, but. They've never embraced the possibilities of it. They see it as a threat to design. I have entirely the opposite view. It is an opportunity to improve design because it allows people to, to try more and the softwares will, in fact, contribute to the design detailing process for you. So you can, you can try other ideas without breaking your budget and they haven't seen it. And it's, it happens in a number of ways. I mean... Um, at a non-digital area, at, at one stage I was close to the professor down there and we decided, uh, I don't know whether it was for the year of the built environment or something, but we would, we would run a competition in the, in the School of Architecture and give them an award. Well, I put in $5,000, I think it was. But the plan even then was to say, well, look, I want it not just to be architects, I want it to be a structural engineer and a quantity surveyor. I want you to do this thing where the teams can come along and, and have those three contributions. Well, 
you know, the engineers were, between them all, they decided their curriculums were more important. They couldn't get it all together. So we got some quantities of our own contribution to it, but we ran it for the um, for the architects at least. So these were, I think they were fourth-year students that we had, and the, the commitment was, one, you'll get $5,000. Two, you will build it. You will you will be responsible for its, its construction. Now, how do you get a fourth-year student to do that? Uh, <laughs> anyway, a young lady uh, won it. And, Carmen. Uh, hmm? Carmen? I've forgotten now, but, uh, but yeah. we commissioned their firm was a little... to take responsibility. But it's the wedding chapel up in Albert yeah. Street. Yeah, no, it was Carmen that won that. That was in my year, I remember. It was a, yeah, it was a wedding chapel. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. So it is. It, the, the challenge, I, I 100% agree with you that even when I went finished uni back in 2000 and, and 2005, the, the lack of interest... Well, universities are governed, obviously, they're a business model. You know, mm. their, their business is all about, you know, generating revenue and having students go through. The architecture course has changed throughout the years purely to suit business models. And to try, and I know that there's been so much push to try and obtain a collaborative approach between the different disciplines in education, but it just never seems to hold up. Mm. But the only way they, I think, they normally sometimes sneak it into it is by you know optional electives we can i think that's the, the the course that scott beasley ran for a period of time was an was an optional optional elective that you could do mm. but you know maybe the architectural professions being held back in education by people that fear fear the tools and fear being replaced it's, but it's a vision and culture as well because I was going to do I was going to do that every year. The, the professor moved on; uh, he was ambitious. But but I would have been happy for five grand or ten ten grand a year to give the students the inspiration or the encouragement, not inspiration, the encouragement to say, look, instead of just doing this design and documentation, do the design that you throw in the bin later on. You can actually go and build it. Yeah, or well, producing a design in in university that actually can't be built mm. because you just designed it mm. based upon your you know your imagination. Mm. And yeah, no, well it, it brings in that integration earlier. Mm. With your decades of experience in architectural practice and in essentially leading, you know, a, a major multidisciplinary practice for the Queensland government. What are your thoughts on the future of the profession and how the prof- what, what, what do you think the profession needs to do to remain relevant to pr- continue to provide value for their clients? <laughs> or is that the biggest loaded question you've ever had in your life? <laughs> uh, it, it's not an easy question to answer and it, it, it's going to come back to the practitioners and to be prepared to let go of all of the prejudices that they've come to. They've got to do the sort of things that you're talking about is look afresh. What is it that we're here for? Think about the client's perspective. The client isn't just the pay the person that's going to pay you. They're the one you're working for. Yeah. Right? That's what your your role is to is to give them what they need. Not always what they want because they'll come with some wants, but um, it's not imposing on them my self-aggrandizement or anything else. 
if your training experience and capabilities can complement and add to the client's wants and maybe modify it so that at the end of the day they get everything they want but more. That's what architecture's got to be about. Yeah. And what does more mean? More in terms of functionality and visual appeal and, and, and cost and maintainability. But because it's, the process is so much more complicated because there are so many more technical things that have got to go into it that the architects on their own can't possibly cope with all of it. Mm. So it's, it's got to increasingly be built around the team and the, the, the role of the architect needs to be about leader of that team. And I don't mean that in the sense of dictating this is what we will do. No, I don't like your structural model. You do it my way. It's about leadership in a meaningful way, you know, of, of taking it forward where everybody's going with you. Yeah, yep. And how we get to that, I'm, I'm not sure, but but that would be my vision in any – if if – that was sort of what we were trying to do with that business a bit, but because we we're very focused on clients, we were looking to do what they they needed, and we didn't do a bad job on that. But yeah, we've got to put some of those those prejudices, and the design one is the one that I'm, I'm focused on. It's it's seeing design or, and I'm talking about design and yeah, yeah. So it's actually about providing the full service to a client rather than just thinking that design is the service we provide as an yeah, architect. Yeah. And it's more than just the pencil sketch. It's actually the full resolution with the whole team and leading the team through the gates and, and taking back that that mantelpiece as the architect is essentially the one that guides the project to success. That's right. If, yeah. if they can accept that that's their responsibility, not just about... In, you know, encourage some some inspired design that's unbuildable, but they see their role as a leader of a team that adds more and more and more value. You've just finalised your position as chair at, at MathSpec. You know, so you, you've still been involved in the industry, you know, despite, you know, kind of semi-retirement, I guess I'd call it. I would never call it full retirement, Tom. Mm. Obviously the work that you were doing finalised, you know, seven years ago, you know, it's almost a decade, which is scary. And, you know, obviously two years ago we had the the new um, document produced or the new policy produced by this Queensland State Government around digital enablement and their desire to being able to have industry from a design perspective and construction perspective being able to provide them adequate deliverables in a BIM sense for FM. What are your thoughts on, you know, industry's capability of being able to achieve that? Obviously, there's challenges internally in agencies to, first of all, be able to know what information they want delivered at the end of the project. Mm. But what are your thoughts on uh, industry's capability of doing that, delivering that as well? Oh, I, I think the capability is where, you know, the, the solution arises from the challenge, doesn't it? That, yeah. that once it's known what it is we want, where we want to be, then people will will find the way to get there. So that doesn't concern me too much. I see a lot of um, one of the people I work with in in Natspec is um, is representative of the of the master builders in New South Wales, and um, they're doing some very good stuff. I think they're they're very much on top of 
where their part of the industries are going. I mean, they're suffering from lack of apprenticeships and people not being prepared to 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 walk the walk to to get their trade skills up. Uh, a lot of frustrations for them. Um, but they've got some some very good thinking going on in, in that organisation and what they're wanting to do very much is to collaborate with architects. They want it together and that'll be interesting to see. So really the key answer to all this is purely about collaborating and, and having an open, an open uh, communication to actually enabling collaboration to occur. Yeah. And then like anything, it's a team sport delivering these projects and the success of a project is based upon whether a team is coherent and working well together. Mm. And I think that's probably some of the challenges as to why we see some projects fail mm. catastrophically, not in mm. a structural sense, but you know, in terms of program or cost blowouts, is because the team aren't working together as one. Yeah. Well, it can be that. Sometimes it's compromised by people's selfishness and desire to, to screw yeah. this and just to make <laughs> some money for themselves. But Sim- uh, simple business interests for themselves, yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely um, challenging in that sense. But, you know, Tom, it's been a pleasure and very much a privilege in my mind to uh, have the time to actually get to sit down and have a chat with you and think that one of the things that I've always kind of thought that's really important is that the only way in which you can move forward in life is and build, on, build something is by learning from your past. Yeah. So I'm hoping from today that everyone that's getting to listen to this can learn from the actions and efforts that you and your team and people that are still within industry today have delivered in the past and then they can build upon it. Now, I'm really looking forward to the answer for this one and it's a question that I ask all of the guests I have on my podcast. What does BIM mean to you? BIM is the tool that enables many of the other things that we've talked about to be delivered. It gives more opportunities for designers. It gives much more benefit for integration. It's, it's, it's the information there for people to understand what they're trying to do is compounded. So, yeah, it's, it's um, a central part of the whole thing. I think it's still in its infancy, frankly. I think it's got a long, long way to go because it becomes very, it's still very complicated to do. It's going to get I, – I, my vision is that we'll have a drawing board like my, my TV screen yeah. and you will actually work live on it and all of the technical stuff that you've got to do is being done by the, the system in the background. So all you're doing is almost going back to your, your, your 6B pencil again that you're drawing but, but there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the background that complements that. Now that's where I, I can vision it, Ed, being at some stage in the future. No idea when, but that, that's, that's the opportunity. We've got to move the clients along. And, and the other thing I think that can be taken away from this discussion, I think, is your comment about, you know, if, if the clients lead or are shown the way or given it should give the, essentially set up the field and say this is the goalpost, industry will follow. And mm. I think that's an important point to take away also from uh, someone who's in industry and seeing governments across Australia and you know overseas as well now mm. making those suggestions and saying this is where the goalposts are mm. and now industry can actually start progressing mm. forward where by losing that government traction for you know so long mm. has meant that industry is essentially 
probably not stalled. I don't think I'd call it stalled, but essentially kind of lost focus and direction in terms of everyone's been in it for themselves rather than having clients drive that outcome. Mm. But um, thanks once again for your time, Tom. Now, for more information on Tom and the history of BIM in Queensland and specifically the Queensland Government, and I'll try and pull up as many of these uh, documents as I can, make sure you head to our website to find the links to the various pages and documents that we discussed today. Now, I look forward to sharing our podcast in a fortnight's time. And uh, until then, good luck with your digital transition. For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. Digital transition.